I've seen your Twitter mentions, though, dude. I think you have some groupies. There are some Smittians out there. It's only because I take my shirt off and I got badass tattoos. <laughs> That's just part of your whole brand, which includes your philosophical world, right? <laughs> What's going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am a sweaty Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori, and I am perfectly room temperatured. Oh man, it's just so hot and humid and muggy here. It was 91% humidity. Do you know how the percentages work? Like, is 100% just ocean? You're literally <laughs> drowning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when it's ninety one percent, you're effectively like Gasping the air for is air, just yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. I literally, I mean, you know, I had my lung surgery, so uh, I'm very sensitive about oh, like breathing yeah. issues when they arise. Yeah. And I I woke up the other morning and I was like gasping for air, but it's not just me. It's like other people because the air was so thick and my room got all fucking like. Uh, well, for people who don't know, my power's out, which stay tuned for my shitty minute. But um, And so because my power was out, I couldn't have my fan on. And normally my fan on is at night. So I woke up and I was like, <gasps> and I was like, oh, no, is my lung collapsing again? <laughs> it wasn't. Oh, my it's God. <laughs> I, was just, I was just being melodramatic. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, when you had your lung surgery, you should have just had them like attach some gills, like get that shit taken care of. Yeah, that's what I figured, man. What the fuck? What are, what are we paying you for, man? I mean, granted... It was all taken care of because I have insurance and shit, but like, come on, man, what are we paying you for? Give me some fucking, <laughs> some fish gills. Um, all right. So this week we are going to be talking about an essay slash blog post that has been doing the rounds complaining about academia. Troy, what is the title of it? Uh, Confessions of an Ex-Philosopher. Yeah. And it's about someone who actually did a PhD and was doing postdoc work and decided to leave academia and basically wrote this really long confession um, and criticism and also, I guess you would say, benediction. Or not benediction, what's the word I'm looking Yeah, I guess it's a type of benediction, trying to encourage other people maybe um, who are in similar conditions and whatever. So we're going to talk about the essay, talk about some of the frustrations that this author illuminates and uh, maybe share some of our own experiences and talk about maybe some of the problems with academia per se, academic philosophy more broadly, and maybe, I don't know, who knows where the fuck else the conversation will go, yeah? Yeah, it belongs to the genre that we uh, frequent, you might call bro time. Bro time. Join us in our bro time in a few (laughs) minutes here. (laughs) Bros and sis is welcome, of course. True, that bro, I mean, is bro a gender-neutral term? I, I heard a bunch of people online saying that Bernie bro is not gender-neutral. I'm like, yeah, but you can't call people Bernie broads because then I'll get canceled. So what, what do we do? Yeah, I mean, I, I do kind of want it to be like dude, which I think is, at least in California, was you know gender-neutral. Um, oh, yeah, I use it all the time. Yeah, so bro needs to become that, but it probably isn't right now. Right now it's probably, it's got that like erasure tendency, but we can, we can yeah. work on that. Okay. Well, this podcast be the change will be in... you want to see in the world. Be the... <laughs> I was just going to say this is this is going to be an enactment of that future vision. <laughs> All right. Cool. And then uh, just a shout out, a reminder that if you want to support what we are doing, if you want to throw some pennies our way, if you want access to bonus content and the monthly newsletter, as well as being able to contribute to the Democracy Motherfuckers, where you can suggest 
episode topics, please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and you will be able to get that. We did a bonus episode last week about the uh, caucus, the Iowa caucus, and talked about some of the prospects for the Democratic primary season moving forward. So go over there and you can check that out as well as the whole back catalog. We talk about movies. We talk about culture. We have guest interviews. We talk about poetry. We talk about drinking, all kinds of good stuff. So go check out uh, the back catalog at patreon.com slash owls at dawn to get access to that madness. Yeah. Good, good use of the royal we when talking about drinking. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we also <laughs> talk about doing bong rips. Remember when we were talking about like putting that as the insert, the, the kind of, uh, where you're like, welcome to owls after dark. And I was like, oh, we should have like a little like burbly sound right here. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 They uh, insert the little burbly of the, of the water bong. So yeah, we, go to, uh, we should just take the clip of Bong Joon-ho saying, I will drink until next morning. And that could be our tagline. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. But you know what we got to do before we get into this main segment, Austin? I'm ready. We got to talk about that shitty minute. Yes, sir. This is the part of the podcast where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So Austin, I've got a pretty good clue, but (laughs) what's got you down? Yeah, man. I mean, I teased it a minute ago, but I'm currently sitting in a house that has no power because we had a gnarly storm roll through Sydney this past week, and uh, there was bad flooding, power lines got knocked over, um, you know, trees fell on cars. I don't believe there were any fatalities. I, I think everything was, was okay on that front, but a lot of property damage, and more inconveniently for over 100,000 households is that power got knocked out. And um, I am in one of those neighborhoods where power was knocked out on Sunday, and it is now Wednesday. And yeah, well, actually, now technically it's Thursday morning because it just turned midnight here. So, um, but there is no indication about when exactly the power will come back on. And they're thinking it could be through the weekend. Now, I live at the this intersection. We're uh, really close to an intersection, and at the street that is adjacent to mine, um, there was a massive power line that got taken out by a tree. So I knew that they were having issues, but I didn't know that our power was going to go out until like Sunday at 9 p.m. Just doof, everything stopped, right? And then we thought, as it normally is in um, you know a first world country. <laughs> You normally think, like, you take it for granted. Like, oh, of course, the power people will get it back on in a couple hours or something like that. And here we are now on day three without any power. So it's been kind of interesting. And and I just want to say at the outset, like, I'm fine. Like, it, I've had some inconveniences. There's no hot water, so I can't have a hot shower, which kind of sucks because I just got a tattoo on Monday as well. So I actually need warm water to clean it. So I've been like cleaning it, cleaning it at the gym or at like the university like bathroom with my antibacterial soap. <laughs> Cuz I want to get that warm water. You know, you don't need hot water, but you got to get some warm water rather than this frigid ice cold water. So, but minor minor inconveniences. The the biggest inconvenience for me was that I had to throw out all my freshly bought food from my freezer and my fridge, um which kind of sucked and uh and that now that I can't like buy new stuff. I mean, yeah, I could get like an, a cooler with some ice and stuff like that to buy to buy perishables, but um, it's just been I haven't been able to store food, so I've been eating out a little bit more, so I've been spending a little bit more money. But here's the thing: like 
that's me being petit bourgeois and complaining about minor inconveniences, but I'm okay. But there were hundred over 100,000 households, and how many more people were affected that didn't have a little extra cash in their account where they were able to go out and get meals and things like that? And really, all that we were getting from... I think it's called AustraGrid, which is basically Australia Grid, which is their electric company. All we were basically getting from them were these kind of like really small, oh, we're working on it. We'll try to get things up soon. Please be patient with us. And then like, you know, this is the worst storm that we've had in 20 years, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we're like, yeah, we get it. It fucking sucks. But this is why you need social safety nets. This is my shitty minute. This is why you need publicly funded social safety nets because one – um, not only are we all fucked and not only if you were poor and you didn't have any recourse whatsoever to alternative accommodation or you didn't have extra cash that you could go and buy meals, you couldn't afford to get an ice chest and a, a buttload of ice because you're just barely scraping by with the meal plan that you're currently set up on. But there's all these cafes and restaurants and hotels and things like that in our neighborhood. All of them are out of business. They're all fucked. All of the cafes, perishable goods, they're all fucked. They're all losing business. And the only thing they can maybe rely on is private insurance. That's maybe it, right? Because this was a natural disaster. So they might be able to recoup some money through private insurance, just like the houses and the residential. They might be able to recoup something for like the loss of perishables. But who's going to really like reach out to their insurance company and make a claim over $300 of food that was lost, right? They're probably not going to do that. It's more if you had like a major leak or if like something fell through your house and it's thousands of dollars. So again, it just seems that this is another indication. This is why you need something, some kind of social social safety net rather than these privatized, defunct, or just dilapidated um, supposed protections that don't actually offer the protections that you might need when these types of situations arise. And then here's the shittier thing. I couldn't believe it, but Ostrigrid actually even tweeted out on their Twitter page, they were like, try to make um, alternative accommodation arrangements if you can. I was like, that's kind of fucked, man. Like, how can you just presume that it's just so easy? First of all, there are a lot of international people. This is a cosmopolitan, transitory city. So many people are here who don't have family. And then not only that, but how can they just presume that it's just easy for people to, one, either be like, yeah, I'm going to go stay with my parents, family, or friends, or two, rent accommodation. It's not that fucking easy, especially because it's not like they were like, hey, we're going to be giving out vouchers, or we've got these opportunities for people where people can come and stay. You know, we've got these extra rooms. They don't have anything like that. And that's why you just need to have a robust social system where there are supports in place to take care of people. And that's fucking, that's my shitty minute, man. Like, I'm lucky. My household is one of the lucky ones. Yeah, we're inconvenienced, but we're okay. We're not starving. We got a roof over our head. I got pretty candles so I can live out my cabin fantasy in this uh, urban city and pretend that I'm okay. And I've got the university campus resources. I've got cafes where I can go to. I'm lucky, but not everybody is, man. It kind of just fucking sucks, you know? And it made me think, too, that, again, this is also happening in a uh, advanced industrial slash post-industrial nation. When these things hits, hit places like, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, when they hit uh, Puerto Rico, like the gnarly hurricanes that ravage through there and just fucking destroy their infrastructure. I mean, this is just a, the tip of the iceberg kind of experience compared to that shit. So, I don't know, man. It just kind of really... It disappointed me that that there was nothing that there's nothing that could be done. You know that we're kind of just at the mercy of the situation into which we've been thrown, and that just kind of sucks. It just makes you feel helpless. You know. Yeah, and especially you know, it's like the new genre of status quo defense is just to lay out all these options of things you can do in a situation like this, 
that are totally doable if only you have a bunch of family members um, who live near you and a bunch of money in the bank and um, or whatever else, right? Like you're mentioning. Uh, did you see that little kerfuffle on Twitter the other day about um, that was Liz Bruning of the NY Times uh, mm-hmm. posted this article about you know how you can very easily lose your health coverage when you move between jobs and there isn't really an obvious way to uh, resolve that problem um, such that you can actually have coverage uh, for whatever period you, you need to, in like a trial period or whatever. And yeah. then some dude, I can't remember where he was from, posted this super lengthy series of tweets responding about how all the options you can go through to get coverage. Um, hmm. And it involves like just hours and days worth of work and paying Cobra like $6,000 for a month and then just not paying the premium afterwards if you don't need it. Um, and all these things, right? And then the responses for most people, at least you know, on my feed from the left, were like, "This is like the best possible advertisement for why the status quo sucks. <laughs> that, yeah. that the options you have in front of you are just like hysterical misery, right? Um, yeah. And that's just that's just it, right? Um, the status quo defenses now are just so obviously ridiculous and Rude Goldberg type that it, it you couldn't have a more obvious or a, a better um, way of showing or exposing the fact that status quo sucks than to look at the you know possibilities uh, in response that you can do to situations like this. Yeah, the, the bottom line is it comes down to what kind of society do we want to live in? Sure, there are all of these technological mechanisms that we can pursue if we have the right conditions and we have the time and we have the means to be able to pursue them. But let's, one, let's presume that you even do have the time and the capacity to do that. That still is a very kind of almost robotic, dehumanizing, instrumental form of sociality, which at the very least is not the best, right? At the very least, it's not even good. At the very least, it kind of is adequate if you are, uh, if you have adequate means, which is that what we want to defend? Just it's okay under these particular conditions if you have these other situations and means that will allow you to be able. I mean, that's just like that, that, that form of rationality blows. And the, the fact that that is then papered over and covered and packaged and sold as not being status quo, but as being like efficient markets, suck my dick, man. That is not at all. That's just ridiculous, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, worst of all, it obscures the fact that this is a result of Collective choice. Choice. That's right? it. I mean, policy decisions. Yeah. yeah. It's one thing if it's like, hey, look, um, you know, anarchy has erupted in the streets. Here's what you can do to defend yourself. You know, and all the options suck. Well, yeah, of course. Um, you know, society's breaking down or whatever, right? It's the purge. Um, but these are all <laughs> results of like choice. Like literally collective yeah. choice has given us the shittiest possible options. It should be obvious that, well, we can just do better than that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And... I think I think it was Eric Olin Wright actually who's who when he was talking about universal basic income I really liked the way he did it even forgetting universal basic income the way that he framed it was we need to find out one if it's desirable two if it's feasible and I can't remember what he did but he kind of like went through this list of things and I was like yeah that's right like is it desirable sure is it feasible sure like and then like is it pragmatic or is it whatever, you know, like it, it, can you implement it or whatever it was? And then it was like, yeah, sure. Like are there, are there mechanisms in place or whatever it was? And it's like, yes. So it's like, once you go through those things, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it'd be desirable to have like 
you know, every step that you take, you have an automatic orgasm. That's desirable too, but is it feasible? Probably not, you know? So maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we shouldn't advocate for that policy, you know? Sorry, techno-utopians. Um, <laughs> but, like, this is not something that seems that dastardly to offer as a policy proposal. As a matter of fact, it seems quite reasonable to be like, how about we just have support systems, say social systems that actually not – that they don't rely on – uh, private insurance schemes, that they don't rely on people having the appropriate means, that they don't rely on us having having to jump through a million hoops in order to be able to um, live lives that would uh, will allow us to be able to at least achieve or try to achieve measures of flourishing. You know, it just it, it just seems to me that it is desirable and it surely is feasible. So we got to fucking try to do that shit, you know, so. So, you know, Austin, I'm wondering, um, why have you not enacted your cabin in the uh, cabin in the forest uh, dream during this time? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm literally sitting here right now, although I do have a laptop, so I'm not totally primitivist, but I literally have two candles burning in my room right now. I mean, that's pretty, pretty cabin in the woodsy, isn't it? Is it too close to like the like Jacky and Lacanian, you know, too close to the real? Too like close to the real? Having your fantasy actually realized? Yeah, my my fantasy I think also entails that I have other bourgeois comforts in my cabin. So it's not like <laughs> it's not like a cabin cabin cabin. It's just like a glamping cabin. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez. No, I know. It's a good it's been a good test. It's been a good test to uh see whether or not I could uh I could deal with you know, three three days of cold water. Oh <laughs> damn. I don't know if I can make it. <laughs> Oh gosh, I know. So it sucks, man. Like, like I said, I'm okay, um, and it's just minor inconveniences. But it just—it it was more the response of Ostrogrid and the lack of communication, which is just another big issue. You know, we talked about this with the Bernie thing, with the with the um, Iowa, uh, the Iowa Democratic Party, that they were just basically. Not even saying, like, giving an estimate of when we would find things out. And it's kind of something similar here. There's something about just bureaucratic institutions that are just fucking terrible with communication. Like, don't give us these partial things. Like, hey, sorry, we're doing the best we can. Yeah, I get that. That's cool. What if you try to be like, hey, we understand things are shitty. This is where we are. We're doing this. We're working on this. We're working on this area. Then we're going to look at this area. Like, you got to communicate with people, dude. You got to just fucking. It's almost like half communication in under the auspices of transparency through uh, like social media and technology is almost even worse than no transparency. <laughs> You know, like if we were in like the 1800s and all the shit went down, we'd all just be like, oh, fuck, what are we going to do? And we'd, we'd have like no information. And I don't think we would have our expectations that we would have anything resolved as quickly. But when you get like partial information, then it like raises your expectations even more. And it makes things even worse when you don't get those expectations fulfilled, you know? Yeah, you got to follow that rule, like, you know, under promise, over deliver. <laughs> yeah or just like shut up like that's it <laughs> you just shut up just go just go dark no no they would have gotten fucking torn apart yeah so <laughs> well no, it literally did go dark but yeah it literally did go dark yeah yeah, yeah. all right that's my shitty minute moving on all right should we talk about this uh blog post yeah dude let's talk about it why don't you lead us into it yeah, so it's um, 
it's on a, uh, I believe it's on Medium, is it not? I guess it's on this other kind of blogging website, but uh, it's from the author who's, I believe, anonymous in the article, although I, I do know who it is. Um, someone who's kind of been a philosophy blog person for quite a while. Um, yeah. And the name of the um, blog is formerly known as a philosopher, so obviously they've kind of made it just for this specific post. Um, mm-hmm. And he uh, writes this article titled Confessions of an Ex-Philosopher. And the basic idea here is that he has... Um, been in the philosophy academic world for, I believe, 15 years, um, has a PhD, a couple of postdocs, has written a couple books, many articles, um, in these sort of continental, um, meets like a recent analytic philosophy world. Um, he's a, is a name that I certainly have known of over the past several years, but mostly from like blogosphere, um, and Twitter and stuff like that. And writing on stuff like um, Sellers and the Brandom and sort of the Pittsburgh Hegelians and then recent continental philosophy like Baju and Mayasu and stuff like that. Um, and he has decided to leave the uh, academic world and um, kind of decides to throw a little bit of a grenade on the way out. Yeah, would that be an appropriate metaphor, you think? Yeah, it's pretty grenade Yeah. Um, and so I think we can talk about a bit is I don't think necessarily we need to like critique the article so much as try and understand what it's doing, like what's the illocutionary status um, of this post um, and why maybe it's sort of um, gone viral a bit. Uh, mm. And I think it's more than just its tone, although its tone certainly is part of that. It's very like caustic and, um, you know, casting hmm. many aspersions on uh, different institutional forms. Um, in the philosophy and academic world, and then maybe even re- respond a bit to ourselves. Like, what what was your sort of, to use the speech act theory term again, like perlocutionary effect of mm-hmm. having read this? And do you find commonality with it, um, or do you think that there's some sense in which it's possibly uh, missing something important about the sort of inherent uh, or, or intrinsic value of you know philosophy in the academic world or whatever? So yeah, mm-hmm. I think we can kind of just. Um, go at this and see where it goes. We don't have to have a necessary through line um, going through the whole thing, yeah. Yeah. The uh, first thing I'll say is it does seem um, in academic Twitter, especially among grad students and young researchers, and and there are reasons for this, but it does seem that it is very much like in fashion to complain about academia, right? <laughs> especially in the humanities. And there are reasons for this. Part of the reason is because their job prospects are poor and departments are being defunded left and right. And um, admin work is being piled into people's laps where previously there were, uh, um, you know, set apart administrative staff. And teaching loads are being increased. It's set marking and money for teachers' assistance is being taken away. I mean, etc., etc., etc. So, um, I do think that the that there are structural constraints that are squeezing some of the enjoyment out of, at the very least, out of the fantasy of what we all thought that academia would be when we were young, bright, 
in first reading philosophical or critical theory texts or whatever, thinking that we would be able to contribute to meaningful conversations, that we would be a part of stimulating academic environments, that there would be communities of like-minded people where we would have seminars and we would be wrestling over ideas and and that we might even be able to contribute to these social conversations in meaningful ways based on our research and that people would take us seriously and that they would read our work. And I mean, I don't know whatever this particular person's fantasies were, but we all have our own fantasies about kind of what it is that we're going to do as we get into these things. And now some of us, we kind of just follow the flow too, right? Like you go to do your bachelor's degree, uh, you're really good. You have some professors that maybe you encourage you in particular ways. And it's like a friend of mine once said that I think we've talked about on this podcast, sometimes your decisions make decisions, right? And the next thing you know, you're in a master's degree program. And then the next thing you know, you're studying for the GRE. And the next thing you know, you're figuring out scholarships for a PhD. And then the next thing you know, you've defended your you've defended your thesis and then the next thing you know you know and it's like and it kind of it kind of catches you in the flow and you're so caught up in the game you're so caught up in still maintaining that fantasy but then also trying to adjust it based on the, the realities that you're facing as you take these progressive steps through the career and you're publishing stuff and and it's a very interesting um trajectory that you can either be totally pushed from behind and you don't realize it until you stop and you're like, fuck man, I'm, I'm 10 years down the road and I'm not really happy. I'm not really fulfilling those desires for connection, those desires for authenticity. I'm not fulfilling those fantasies that I had where I would be engaging with community, talking about meaningful things and finding fulfillment in those things. And then you find yourself stuck, you know, 10 years down the road, 11 years down the road, 12 years down the road, and you're like, well, what the fuck am I going to do? I'm 30-something years old. All I've ever done is be in academia, except for maybe a couple of jobs that I had when I was in college. It's not like I can go and, you know, get a job as a graphic designer. I'm, I'm You know, they're going to be like 22-year-old studs, and I here I am like fucking 36 years old, 30, however old you are. So I kind of get from that perspective, I get the anxieties from the outside that the structure are imposing on people. And I also get how that doesn't, um, doesn't always fit. And it kind of jars with a lot of times, you know, the expectations and the fantasies that we had, the romantic fantasies that we had when we were just kind of young undergrads, or even maybe prior to that in high school or something like that, when we were reading Nietzsche or Sartre or de Beauvoir in our, in our, under our covers or something like that, you know? Yeah. I do wonder a bit, um, how much of what's going on here is, this institutional um, sort of logic where if you follow the normal trajectory and pathway, you're 23 or 24 years old going into a PhD program and you're done by the time you're in your late 20s or 30 years old, right? And for a lot of people, especially um, I think given how adolescence now is much sort of longer than it used to be, um, just don't really have a, a really great idea about who they are and what they um, want to do with their life at that time at like 23 years old. You know, like both mm. of us had um, you know, interstitial times between graduate degrees um, to really kind of explore other avenues in life and then come back to yeah, and, and I didn't And I didn't even start uni until I was 21, 22. Yeah, you had it all throughout your whole life. <laughs> yeah, I've taken lots of breaks. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good, right? I mean, it's not yeah. good in the sense of it, it's sort of um, like in terms of you know, economic investment and stuff like that. It's not good, right? Um, yeah. So you're not, you know, 
sort of uh, your sort of advisors won't tell you that this is a good idea. But there's some sense in which I wonder a bit, although I don't want to like claim this outright, that there's something good about exploring other things in the world and then realizing, you know, I could do other things, but really my passion is for academic work and for me especially like teaching. And so I want to go back to that and to make the active choice to do it when other avenues are open to you rather than just following the easy trajectory, right? And that's not an exhaustive account of what's going on in this post because I know that this person um, is, is, I think, a really good philosopher and, and, and could have done this um, if, if situations had been different. And so uh, it's not just an exhaustive, exhaustive explanation of what's going on here, but there's something there I think that's important to point out that this, this normal trajectory of becoming an academic for a lot of people at a very early age maybe isn't best suited um, for sort of realizing um, what's in your best interest or, you know, um, really making the active choice to engage in academic work as a lifetime pursuit. Mm. Yeah. And, and I always, I always understand, or I always, I always want to understand like when we do have our sources of dissatisfaction, how much of that comes from the, 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 maybe the naive, fantasies that we have erected how much of it comes from that um that that is confronted by the realities that we end up facing and then further to that how much of that do we have control over like does that mean that we should just completely then be like well you just gotta accept reality bro like reality just fucking sucks man like, you know, suck it up. Eh, no, that's stupid. Um, and then at the same time, it can't just simply be, well, just maintain your naivete, bro, and just be the crazy bohemian artist that you want to be or whatever. Like, sometimes that's cool too, but maybe not always, you know? Like, like I'm down for that. Sometimes we need a little bit of romanticism and a little bit of that kind of, like, naivete. And then maybe you need a little bit of practicality and a little bit of kind of awareness of how to play the game a little bit or how to fit yourself into the the structures of the game without feeling like that somehow is sapping vitality from you. So it, it seems that there is a compromise here, and I hate even saying that because that seems to violate so much of what I think about with regards to authenticity and things like that. But I do wonder, like, how much of this needs to be navigated, you know? Yeah, I think it's important to point out that, and I encourage anyone out there to read this article. We'll post it in the show notes. Um, it, it's, it's rather long, but it's a really quick read, and, uh, and well-written, so it'll flow real nicely. Very well-written, yeah. Um, that, that this person is not leaving philosophy. I think that even though there's, there's a lot of this sort of um, casting aspersions on philosophy as a whole, um, they're still going to do philosophy like a lot through their life. Like as a, not necessarily as the one pursuit of their life, but as a, as a huge part of, and constitutive part of um, what's good about their life. And so um, it's not really, I think, mostly about philosophy as such. Um, or even necessarily like the academic pursuit of philosophy, but maybe just the specific institutional apparatus that exists at this time um, in the, like the um, Western world um, regarding mm. philosophy. That seems to be the major problem here. And that is something I think we can probably all get on board with, right? Um, there's this one quote that I, that I highlighted that that was pretty important where he says, um, when the inexpressible... Um, but because too close to the bone for me to articulate onto the, or excuse me, on the inexpressible project of shaping my own individuality, what I thought philosophy was about, became mm. the public performance of puzzle solving, 
that's when I developed a rejection of philosophy. And of course, again, I don't think it's rejection of philosophy as such, so much as a rejection of the specific contours or in, of the institution of philosophy that exists right now in the Western world. Um, there's another point where I think I really connected with the article um, where he mentions that he became sort of enraptured by philosophy first in like later high school years by addressing and having conversations with friends in high school about the big ideas, capital B, capital I, big ideas. Hmm. And everybody who's um, studied philosophy in any academic uh, or formal sense knows this phrase, the big ideas, right? Hmm. Every single person, from my knowledge, gets into philosophy this way. Nobody reads some puzzle-solving analytic philosophy article from Noose and then says, Hmm. this is what I want to do with my life, right? Everybody starts out with questions like, does God exist? Um, what should I do with my life? Uh, what is right and wrong? Um, you know, what's the just society look like? These yeah. are the kind of questions that, how do I have knowledge? These are the kind of questions that everybody gets into and is super um, intrigued by and, and wants to pursue for their own sake, right? Knowledge for its own sake. Um, and then there's some sense in which academic philosophy not only moves away from that, but sometimes actively tries to stifle that interest in you. Hmm. There's almost a sense in which for some people it seems like those are naive, considered like naive questions, like naive concerns, like childish or adolescent things to think about. That's not real philosophy. And most people wouldn't actively say that, but I do think there's sort of an, an aura of that that exists in a lot of especially analytic philosophy. And I think in continental philosophy too, um, as the sort of institutionalization of it, sort of circles around specific pet issues and problems and sort of formal ways you have to do philosophy to be taken seriously uh, and be published and do the things you need to do to get tenure and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's, I think, super important. The fact that, um, that the article has this sort of caustic tone about it, I think, comes from the fact that it's you feel a bit dominated and humiliated by the fact that institutional philosophy tries to tell you that your concerns and the things you care about and the reason you got here in the first place is childish or naive. And that's awful. One, because it's wrong. Absolutely, all the philosophy is ultimately about those big questions. There's a reason why they're called the big questions, right? Um, And so if you've lost the thread there, then you just suck as a philosopher, I think. If you can't Mm -hmm. tie in your philosophical concerns with those big questions or with at least some big question, I think you just kind of suck as a philosopher. Like, why are you doing this? Um, yeah. No one's paying you to just like solve puzzles for their own sake. That's that's just stupid and naive itself. Um, but also, like you suck too. You're not just wrong, but you suck hmm. because this is how people get interested in philosophy in the first. This is why people who aren't in the academic world care about it. They care yeah. about these questions too. Everybody cares about these questions at two a.m. on a Sunday night, right? <laughs> and so, um, if you're going to sort of uh, sort of cast these people down and humiliate them and call them childish and naive. Um, and, and sort of label their concerns adolescent, then you're just like an asshole. These are important mm. things to people, and you should care about them. Um, and you're not going to have anybody who's going to come into your discipline um, in the first place and, and care about your work if you uh, reject those things. So that that really seems to me to be the crux of the issue here, the way that institutional philosophy just takes whatever fire you have in your belly about big questions and just tries as hard as possible to stamp it out. Hmm. Yeah. Um, do you think, I mean, I know you said you think this does exist in the continental tradition as well, but uh, do you think, and obviously I'm 
my bias will be showing here, so I'll try not to let it stick out too much. But do you think that this is something that is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like predominant in the analytic world and much more of a minority issue in, at least this issue, in the continental world? Because I wonder, I, I don't know, I I still was caught up in the romanticism um, even just recently being in the continental world. Well, I'm going to be in Melbourne, too, about around this next week, so I guess I could report back on this with a bunch of continental philosophers. Um, so I'll be able to listen to them complaining about their precarity. Um, but when I'm in the environments with continental philosophers, the complaints tend to be different than the complaints from this particular article. So what I wonder is, is, is there almost a sense in which this guy's, like, joy and this guy's concerns about the big questions, do you think they were kind of more stifled by his um, uh, his involvement in the kind of Anglo-American academy? I mean, I don't think anything about the subject um, of analytic philosophy makes it more this way than continental philosophy. I think they both have um, ways you can do this properly and ways you can do it in, you know, inappropriately, certainly yeah. in terms of addressing the big questions. I do think that maybe the external uh, strictures are, are a little bit different and maybe worse in the Anglo-American philosophical world, just in the sense that it's it's so much more formalized. And there's so much, yeah. There's there's a lot less diversity in terms of the way you can be considered successful in mm. the you know, formal academic world. You kind of have to follow a very certain trajectory um, to achieve tenure and to publish in articles. And there's a lot less leeway in terms of like you know being creative and doing things a little bit differently. So that doesn't seem to me to be necessary like necessary to the way of doing analytic philosophy. There's plenty of right. people who don't do that. Usually you just have to achieve tenure first before you're allowed to break the rules. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, that seems to me like the biggest issue. But I think that, you know, continental philosophy world can do this too. I think the fact that this person was had a foot in both worlds, I think is telling. Um, and really uses examples from both worlds as things that um, are sort of negative associations in terms of, you know, how this is actually going to be meaningful to one's life. Um, continental philosophy sometimes can really overly focus on like individual hero worship, like like just spending time talking about different interpretations of a singular like you yeah. know large figure with no actual connection to the way that this could actually have an effect on the world. Like an example, a good example I think of how this can be done well is what you do with Sartre, right? It's not just like you know, Sartre masturbation, like oh, we're going to take two different interpretations of, of the Sartre CDR and then, you know, battle it out or whatever. No, like you take that interpretation of CDR, which is somewhat novel, and then actually kind of paste it onto the world and see how it affects like, you know, modern political philosophy and stuff like that. Um, that's not always done, right? Sometimes it's just battling out over interpretations of a figure. And mm. that can have some, some value, certainly, right? But it can also, in certain guises, act as something that stamps out that passion for making the world a better place and for changing the world in some small way, or at least reconsidering the world in some small way. Yeah. And I think we've both, we've both been in seminars or we've both been in classrooms or we've just both been in conversations with people who, who they are only concerned with those inside baseball conversations. And it can be exciting when you see somebody because 
Because in order to engage at that level of specificity, you have to have an expertise of the language and of the history and of everything the person has written and all of the conversations that other people have had engaging with this, the meaning of this translation of this word or whatever. And it can be kind of exciting for a short amount of time, right? It can kind of be exciting in short bursts. But when that becomes the kind of dominant mode of communication or articulation of what philosophical discourse is, it gets quite one repetitive, but it almost becomes banal at some point. And you start to think, dude, what the fuck, man? Like, you need to get out there and dance, brother. You know, like you, you need you need to just kind of see the forest, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and I know that I, you can almost even find a real enjoyment in those things. And so he talks about how like he's, he's felt this way for a few years and he hasn't been happy in, in his career for a few years. And I wonder if even like at the beginning, like when he was first noticing the puzzle solving tendency, that that kind of excited him. Right. Cause for me, I really enjoy the puzzle solving. Um, but only if it's related to these like larger issues, right? Because then for me, the puzzle solving almost feels like a way to unlock an aperture to those bigger questions. And so that's why I enjoy certain amounts of of puzzle solving. But this is also why I'm not the greatest academic in the kind of formal academic sense, because I tend to focus so much on the big questions that I kind of just fuck around with the problem solving and the puzzle solving rather than just sticking with one line of questions or one really narrow field of inquiry. I'm kind of like all over the place and I'm trying to get better at that. I mean, you probably got to do a little of both, I think, but I love to focus on like those those big idea things, maybe to the detriment of the pu- of the puzzle solving. And I need to like learn the skills of puzzle solving. But I feel like if I just lived in the puzzle solving world, I too would eventually just be like, this is just stale and dry. And I'm not a mathematician, bro. That's not my thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the puzzle solving stuff, which exists both in analytic and continental philosophy, although in different in different forms, right? In analytic philosophy, it's more about almost like close to literal <laughs> puzzle solving. Uh, intellectual puzzle solving, and in the continental world, it's more about like interpretation and stuff like that. But um, it's a dependent good is the key, right? Like it is good for itself in a way. Like you get you get sort of um, enjoyment and satisfaction out of doing it in and of itself. But then that's only because of its relation to some larger issue, right? Like you don't yeah. care about dissecting some random texts from like you know archaeology of um, some you know, random far off place. Because right. that's just not a, a, like an aim or an end that you've sort of set for yourself or pursued, right? But you have set for yourself and pursued this end regarding some philosophical uh, doctrine or discipline, right? And so any puzzle solving within that is going to be independent or it's going it's to be sort of on its own a good thing that you find satisfaction in. But that's dependent on its relation to the larger questions that you care about. And if you miss that connection, then you're never really, I think, you're going to lose that passion you have even for the intermittent puzzle solving. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Sometimes, sometimes I wish I had more of a passion for the like really close up puzzle solving, you know, like sometimes I wish I were just full on nerd like that. Yeah. Power to those people, man. Yeah. Like those people sometimes (laughs) they're like the quants of philosophy. If you can even use that as an analogy, but you know, the the mentats from, from Dune. (laughs) 
Yeah, man, like they're, they're necessary, but it's just not my world, bro. So, so what do you think about this piece more broadly? I thought it was really interesting that he said he's going to continue translation work and he's even going to like, wants to teach elementary school. I really liked that part, actually. Like to me, I thought that was really wonderful because that's one of the things that especially academic philosophers that I'm uh, familiar with oftentimes complain about is how, you know, that you don't have to, especially in the West, at least in the United States in particular, but you don't have to even ever study philosophy. I'm pretty much get all the way through a college education. You know, you could just take like an intro to critical thought or intro to world religions or some shit like that. And that would fulfill your philosophy credit in a lot of university, uh, a lot of university programs. So you don't really ever have to take philosophy. So the fact that he's going to go and like work with like elementary school, primary aged kids or like young secondary aged kids and like do some philosophy teaching and tutoring and stuff. I'm like, that's kind of rad. Yeah. I mean, you know me, I'm a longtime advocate of the idea that even super young kids should be sort of at the very least exposed to philosophical questioning because young kids are totally able to do it. Well, this is the thing. Young Christians are through theology, right? That's one of the things that's kind of interesting. I almost wonder if my early days of studying Sunday school maybe like even primed me for my philosophical investigations later on without me knowing it because you have these questions about God in the universe and our place in the universe. And even though there's a dogmatism that that encases it and guides it in very strict parameters or through very strict parameters. Nevertheless, there's still something intoxicating about seeing the world from that larger cosmic or celestial perspective, you know? Yeah, but do you think that, I mean, maybe your experience was different than mine um, as a young kid, but was it really even theology being done? Because I feel like whenever actual theological questions would come up, um, they would be stifled, like rejected. Like that's an inappropriate way of thinking. I'm trying to remember. It depends on how old. My dad didn't even convert, so I didn't start going. No, yeah, because I remember my my early, early, early years. I just remember remember like like uh, memorizing Bible verses. So I don't remember theological stuff at that. But I remember when I was you know ten, eleven, twelve that it was heavy shit. Well, yeah, because your dad's like a fully reformed, right? Fully reformed. So he's like going into They're the different, Greek. Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah, full yeah. on theological, right? Which is yeah. one thing I actually I think, even though um, obviously I reject reform theology in all of its guises, <laughs> at the very <laughs> least, the the advantage that they have over like you know American evangelicalism is actually caring about theology, right? Caring about the connections between beliefs, thoughts, doctrines, um, and how one justifies the other, and, and so on and so forth. And that's that's a philosophical enterprise, absolutely. Yeah, like someone, a couple, actually two different people tweeted this past week about like how much leftists read compared to other people, and I want to be like, bro, you never been around Calvinists. <laughs> they read more than anybody. <laughs> more than anybody, bro. And actually, he was this guy that I don't remember who it was, but someone was like, oh, you know, like leftists, it, like it, intellectual people, they read more, and so they tend up being more leftist or something like that, making that kind of argument, right? And I was like, dude, I have never been around people in my entire life that read as much as Calvinists. Like, <laughs> literally. Even now in academia, I'm like, maybe that's why my my uh, workload and my work output is so voracious, because I learned while we were studying where I was like, you just need to read everything and in the Greek and then go back to the Hebrew and then look at the, you know, it's like, ah! Look at all the commentaries. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That commentaries upon commentaries. (laughs) Yeah, dude. Gosh. Yeah, so I think that that, that's certainly true. And um, but the fact is, you know, we have lots and lots of evidence from you know, uh, like child psychology, that kids form 
the necessary sort of conditions and categories for philosophical thinking at super early ages. I mean, even just yeah. in like my own field in moral philosophy, kids as young as two and three already have the concept, um, maybe not like reflectively, but they have the concept of like basically a categorical imperative of the idea of something being um, good with no conditions as opposed to things that are good given certain conditions. So at, at a super incredibly early age, barely after having capacity for language, they already mm-hmm. have these categories that you can think philosophically about things. They're not going to be able to sort of like do active philosophical work, right? But they are going to be able to have the concepts necessary to ask questions and to think about them. And that's mm-hmm. super important to have in kids because if they have that at an early age, if they practice this, um, actually engage in this practice of thinking philosophically or, or thinking about and addressing philosophical questions, they're going to sort of have that throughout their life. But if instead they're told to just be passive recipients of knowledge, what um, is it Paulo Freire calls like the banking concept mm-hmm. of knowledge, right? Um, where you just, you just sort of um, input information and just leave it there for later use. Uh, if they, they're trained in that way, then they're never really going to um, like gather or develop this um, love for philosophical and critical thinking. So, yeah, I think it's super important um, to do this with kids. In fact, it's probably more important than any you know, bullshit um, hmm. work that most formal academics do. Hmm. Uh, so the next thing I want to ask you about, like he seems that he he lost his enjoyment for various reasons in professional academic philosophy. He still wants to obviously he's still going to read. He's still going to think philosophically. It's never going to leave him. But at the same time, I also was talking with a buddy of mine who left the academic world a few years ago and has been working in a completely different field who said that he's like kind of like I don't remember how he put it, but basically like he's not exercising the philosophical muscle. Right is basically the gist of what he was saying. And I can attest to this as well, that when you step away from the world for even like a year, like you lose it a little bit, you know, like not entirely. You still feel like an oddball in certain conversations sometimes, but you definitely lose the sharpness and the crispness of being able to reference texts and kind of like um, perceive intertextual references when somebody's saying something you're like, ah, that concept maps onto this and this and this and that and this person and this person. You kind of, it is a muscle to exercise. So I know that he, he'll lose some of that in terms of like the crispness, crispness of that. But what he might find by doing like teaching, uh, like with young kids and doing translation work and stuff like that is he might kind of get more in touch with those big questions, like the things that he originally fell in love with, you know, which is going to be kind of interesting. I, I, I'd be curious to see if he does like a follow-up I don't know, five years from now to give us, give us an update. Like what is, what is going on now? I'm sure he will actually, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but, uh, but that would be kind of cool, you know, just to see if he can rekindle that love for critical thought and for the big ideas kind of stuff. And that that can be rekindled outside of the structures of the academic world that have sapped that enjoyment. Yeah. There is this interesting, sort of dialectic, right, that exists between the fact that pretty much anyone who's engaged in philosophy ultimately began becoming engaged with it because they love these big ideas, right? They have immense satisfaction in discussing these ideas with people and engaging in philosophical community, maybe in teaching, stuff like that, right? Which all have this, like, direct connection to the big ideas. And then there's this, like, higher-level academic work, which is really more about sort of furthering the philosophical uh, or like domain of philosophical knowledge, right? 
it's sort of like really being a cog in a larger machine, right? If the purpose is to increase philosophical output such that you increase the sum total of knowledge that exists in the world or something like that, right? It can be kind of alienating because you're not really seeing the effects of that. It's way bigger than you can really see. You're kind of just trusting that it's going to work out, right? Yeah, I'm Mm -hmm. contributing towards this larger goal, but I don't really see the goal being achieved. I just kind of hope that it is. At the very least, maybe in like 200 years, there'll be some like measurable difference between where philosophy is now compared to where it was 200 years ago or something like that. That's really hard to see and can be kind of alienating, right? But it also Mm. seems like, well, why else would we be doing this really like you know, fine grain analytic type work, not analytic, it's in the, the specific um, culture of philosophy in Anglo-America, but like in terms of critical work. Um, can you really be motivated by this super abstract goal, which you'll never really see realized? Because if you can't, then that kind of, I don't know, like places a pox on the very idea of trying mm-hmm. to increase the sum total of knowledge in the universe. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing, too, is yeah, what what are our fucking goals, man? Like, why are, why are we doing this? You know, I, I was talking with a buddy of mine. I, I talk with him a lot about this, actually, here in Sydney. But, you know, he's he's finishing up uh, a big project right now. And um, he's got a, a type of like spiritual connection, a desire for depth and poetry and meaning and things like that. And I asked him, I said, do you think you're able to find any kind of poetic fulfillment in your academic work. And he basically instinctually was like, nah. And I was like, oh God, that, that kind of fucking sucks, you know? And and his whole thing was there's, there's it's not creative enough. You know, he's a writer, he's a poet. Uh, he loves film, he loves art. And he's like, there's not, there's not enough of that creative element in his academic work. And I don't know, I was kind of like, you know what, dude, I... I do. I was like, I do feel like I have found a kind of poetry in my work. Maybe I am just a fucking naive and the world is one day going to fall upon my head. Um, but maybe I'll just ride this ignorance train until then. <laughs> but but I do. And, and it was weird. I was trying to tell him because we talk a lot about like my post-evangelical life. And I said, I almost feel like my work now is an extension of the kind of mission or ministry or call that I had previously. Very different towards different ends, not necessarily radically different ends, but definitely, um, at least in terms of content, if not in terms of form, different ends. But nevertheless, I still feel that same kind of investment in it. I still feel motivated when I wake up in the morning to read and write and investigate and talk with other people and communicate and be challenged and uh, and puzzle solve but try to find information that helps me to like cuz i have these inclinations and i have these intuitions and i'm like Ugh, i want to flesh them out and i want to ground them almost you know and i still feel a type of creative enjoyment in that now it's not the same as when i'm in a theater project and I'm, I'm a part of a, of a piece like doing a Neil Labute play or something like that, that I just think is fucking awesome and bombastic and, you know, visceral and like, yeah, that, that has a different type of poetic expression, but it isn't a black and white that either it's creative and poetic or it's not. It's much more that these things, they, they, they express varying degrees of intensity and variation and, 
some moments I feel like transcendent when I'm reading something or writing something or um, retreading some of my notes or something like that, making different connections, sitting in a seminar, you know, at a talk, like talking with uh, colleagues over coffee. And then sometimes I'm like, this is fucking mind numbing, you know? <laughs> and and that does happen sometimes. But similarly, it happens when I'm in a play and I'm trying to just memorize lines. And I'm like, fuck, I just, I, you know, it's, it's it, where it's almost rote, but it's not quite rote. Like that happens too. And the same thing happens when I'm hanging out with family sometimes. You know, it can be amazing. Like now it's always amazing because I don't get to see them all the time. So the short amount of time that we get. But, you know, sometimes I text with my family every day. Sometimes I'm like, motherfuckers, I can't talk right now. My, my fingers hurt. I've been typing so goddamn much. Do you call I'm, your mom and dad motherfuckers? No, maybe my <laughs> maybe my mom, but not my dad. <laughs> my dad still has a direct line with the big guy upstairs. I can't call it. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, like I still am able to find those pockets of joy in my academic work. And I don't know if that's just because I am dispositionally inclined towards this naive, ignorant optimism or what. And I wonder if some of this is just like you've talked about before, if this is just more of a dispositional thing and his disposition just it needed something more that the academic world wasn't giving him whereas maybe someone like myself at least now at least now I haven't gotten to that point yet where he is because I just my disposition is somehow impelling me or maybe I've just been fortunate to have different connections than he has or maybe I've just been able to do different kinds of work outside of academia or maybe it's because I started a little bit later and then I took breaks whatever there's there's some reason that I've been able to maintain a joy and at least maintain the fantasy of this being a creative and this being a meaningful endeavor. You know, I do think it's absolutely dispositional, right? You can't erase that fact. But I do also wonder, now that you're talking about it, I hadn't really thought about this before, but I do wonder a bit if our upbringing in evangelical and then in theological spheres sort of trains you to be okay with the mystery. To be okay, not with the mystery in terms of like the mystery of the Godhead or whatever, right? But in terms of how your work actually does change the world, right? Okay, don't don't forget what you're saying. Hold that thought. I just have to say this because I'll forget what I'm saying. This is literally one of the things that my friend and I talk about all the time. He says, but how do you know it's going to have an impact? How do you know? Da, 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 da. And I yeah. always tell him, I'm like, bro, the mystery of the Holy Spirit. Like I jokingly <laughs> say that, but I'm like, I don't know. But I said, all I want to do, and this is, I've met this, I've said this multiple times. I just want to put a stone in somebody's shoe. This is something that I stole from Greg Kokel, the Christian apologist a long time ago, but I'm going to steal it <laughs> and make it my own and make it cool. But that's it. I don't know, man. The mystery of the Holy Spirit. We don't know how things work. The Lord the Lord works in mysterious ways. But let's take that and then take all of the dogmatic baggage out of that. And then that's kind of for me. But go ahead. Keep going. What were you going to say? Yeah, I mean, I think about this in like a Kantian schema in the sense that, you know, theoretically, we can't really know if there's like a grand telos to the whole thing, right? And so on a smaller scale, do you really know if your philosophical output is going to have the change in the world that would really render it meaningful? And like an, in, a, in a clear sense. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, you can't really know that, right? If anything, the evidence would tell you probably not, right? No one, 12 <laughs> people will read this and then it'll be lost to the, um, you know, like a dumpster heap of history or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you kind of have to act practically as if it will. And that can be, mm. there's like a huge um, tension there, right? Mm. And there's something about theological training maybe that just like makes you comfortable with that. It just makes you trust in the fact that I'm going to act as if this is going to have 
um, some effect. I'm going to put the motive. I'm going to be motivated by the fact that's going to have this change in the world, and I'm going to act as if it is, and write as if it is, and work as if it is, even though theoretically I know it probably won't. And there's mm-hmm. some like mystery there, and theological. Training obviously is big on mystery because those things don't actually ever get solved. Um, <laughs> but yeah. then it, it sort of enables you and gets you used to that tension in a way that it's almost like it's productive in a way um, rather than being sort of, uh, you know, um, what would you call it? Like stifling or something. Stifling, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that when I was reading a lot, I got this sense, and, and maybe this was just because I have this sense, but I got this sense that he he was a little bit disillusioned with, at the very least, with a lot of academic, young academic types who think that they're going to have a great impact on the world, right? Because mm-hmm. we read the Hegels, and then we read how excited other people get when they read the Hegels, and we kind of maybe even fantasize that we will then one day be read like the Hegels, where other people will get really excited about reading the Smiths, you know, works. And, and I wonder if there isn't a type of almost like we're setting ourselves up for failure by by valorizing these figures so much, especially in continental philosophy, right? Where it's so much person-driven. It's the Kantians and then the post-Kantians and the Derridians and the deconstructionists and the existentialists and the Sartreans and the Foucauldians and it's all the Ians, right? And so I wonder if that doesn't kind of like almost set us up for, for dissatisfaction because we maybe think, no matter how much we tell ourselves we're not going to, we maybe think that one day they're going to be Smittians, and we crave that. And then we start to realize, you know what, man? There are a million more people out there that are smarter than me, that have read more than me, that can articulate ideas more perspicuously than me, more inventively than me. There are not going to be Smittians, you know? Like... And, and once you come to realize that, then you might start to think like, fuck, what am I doing this for then? Just so I can be a, a bottom of the barrel researcher who's doing what? Like, I don't love sitting in my room by myself, isolated for hours and being stressed on the weekends where I can't even decompress because I'm still thinking about this bullshit puzzle that I'm trying to solve. And then he talks again about how these students that he knows, these grad students and young researchers, how they just are like, uh, their weekends are fulfilled or just filled I'm sorry with reading that they're constantly just working on that stuff and it's like is that the fate that we want to live you know like is that what it means to be a a researcher if we can't be a Hegel or a Kant or an Aquinas or whatever the fuck you know yeah I mean I've seen your Twitter mentions though dude I think you have some groupies there are some Smittians out there it's only because I take my shirt off and I got badass tattoos (laughs) That's just part of your whole brand, which includes your philosophical world, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't tell me that that Kant didn't have a brand too, right? People timed their 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 watches on his walks. Like he was more than just a philosopher. Yeah, that's true, man. That's true. Um, no, more than I, I a philosopher. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. That if, uh, and I'm not saying this is obviously not what the what the author of the piece was was was. Um, we're not like accusing him of anything here, or malfeasance, or naivete in the sense, but. In, in general, if if you're like addressing philosophical work as a as a way to sort of um, like resolve uh, problems in your life or something, that's not going to work, right? And if you're doing it because you're going to change the world and become a Hegel, it's not going to work, right? There's some sense in which you have to actually consider the thing um, like independently and finally good. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and be comfortable with the fact that it's it's worthwhile even if it doesn't have the grand effects that you hope it may one day have, right? And that's that's tough, man. You know, probably no one has that when they start doing philosophy. You probably don't have that conception when you're 18 or when you're 23 hmm. or 25. And so you may be in the middle of a PhD and you're 28 years old and realize I don't have this. And then you have to make this huge decision about whether or not you're going to continue engaging with the easy uh, easy path of doing what you've been doing your whole life so far or make some radical decision like the author of the piece does. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, if, if you ultimately decide that you enjoy philosophy and you want to do it, but this is not the, the thing of your life, then you do have to make that tough decision and it's going to be ugly and you're going to suffer. Um, but that's ultimately good both for you and for people who care about you and probably for the world too. Hmm. And I don't know that there's like an easy way to figure that out. Like you just do a simple questionnaire and know whether or not you consider philosophy to be this like like academic philosophy, this final good and that you care about independently of anything else. Um, But if you don't have that, you're given especially the the structure that exists right now, which is dehumanizing in like the extreme. Mm -hmm. um, It's probably not the thing for you. But you can still do philosophy without doing it academically. Um, Obviously, right? Philosophy existed long before academic philosophy did, and it will exist long after academic philosophy uh, dies away, if, if that indeed happens. So mm. uh, we don't have to worry about the end of philosophy. You know what? I, I don't think I've ever told you this, so this is kind of a confession. I can distinctly remember in my early theological years when I was like, devouring systematic theologies and the writings of some of the Puritans and, you know, like uh, some of the early Princeton theologians like the B.B. Warfields and the Machins and things like that. I, I can distinctly remember when I would spend considerable amount of time reading philosophy that it affected me in a different way. And I, and I was only reading like analytic philosophy of religion, you know, like maybe the most radical thing I would read was like Oliver Crisp or some shit like that at that point. Um, but I was reading mostly like apologetic stuff, you know? So it wasn't even like radical stuff, but it was the way that they asked questions and the investigations were so unmoored, whereas theology is always, te- especially like reformed theology is tethered, right? Like, you know, liberal theology, experimental theology, death of God theology is intentionally untethered sometimes, right? Um, liberation, feminist, you know, theology, those black theology, like th- that that can be untethered in an intentional way, untethered from certain groundings. That's an intentional move away from certain dogmatic um, kind of over-determining restrictions. But philosophy for me just felt so untethered in a different way from what, like, the Reformed theology of systematic theology does. And I remember it being unsettling at the time. And then here's the weird thing. Now, like, I find it invigorating. It has a type of poiesis to it. It has a type of, and I know you hate fucking Heidegger, but it has a type <laughs> of, like, shining of it. Like, it is, it is like, like something is being released, in a, in a very, I know this is very vague, but like something is coming from being almost that it's articulating and that it's that it's that it's trying to articulate itself in my philosophical investigations. That's how I feel sometimes, and maybe again that is like a, a naive interpretation and enclosure over what I'm doing through a fantasy that I'm trying to force for my own neurotic purposes. Um, but but it. 
it's different now. Like it used to be unsettling and now it's almost like I enjoy that state of being unsettled. And as a matter of fact, I'm almost like addicted to it in a way. Yeah, you know, there's a certain like phenomenological quality to reading something and, and like realizing that you understand something that you kind of always thought but didn't ever, ever articulate mm. in thought. And there's a totally different phenomenological quality to realizing something you never thought and, in fact, realize you never could have thought, <laughs> yeah. right? Which is the unsettling part, right? It's always good to realize something you always knew but couldn't articulate. That's always like a good feeling. It's unsettling at first to engage in the holy shit. I never could have even thought that. I didn't have the conceptual apparatus or tools to think that. But now I do. That's unsettling at first. But then, you know, you just get, like you said, addicted to it, to where now you want to do this with everything, right? You want to take a hammer to all the things um, and mm-hmm. see what comes out of it. There's a kind of like an anarchic quality to good philosophy in that way. Mm. That's, probably, that's, that's a pretty Deleuzian way of thinking, right? Uh, yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I would say, though, rather than it being anarchic, is that um, is that it's almost like you just don't presume what the RK is, what the foundation is. And you almost construct the foundation in the articulation of the project of finding the foundation, you know? Yeah, instead of like um, – I, I picture it as like walking across stones on water, right? Instead of – like seeing where the stone is and then going for it. So already having the idea in mind before you start thinking the thought, right? Of how yeah. this is going to be tethered to whatever grounding idea you're you're trying to support or justify. Yeah. Just like jumping. That's super mm. scary and unsettling, right? But then mm. it's thrilling when it works out. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I, I feel that like every day when I, I just finished this amazing book. And here's the weird thing. I think the guy's really wrong. <laughs> Like, <laughs> but it was so interesting what he did. He's he's using psychoanalysis to kind of critique the market through the triad, the Zizekian triad of symbolic, imaginary, and real. And so he's looking at money. He's looking at derivatives. He's looking at debt. He's looking at equity markets. He's looking at all these different things, and he's using these this psychoanalytic framework. And I think he's so interesting in his engagement with all of these things. And I ultimately at the end think that the, and just the framing itself actually doesn't work, but it's so bold and it's so inventive and it's so creative. And it was such an intriguing read and that I like every day I was drawn back. I was like, I can't wait to open up my book and keep fucking reading this thing. Even though like it's just me like being like, oh, I don't think it's this. We should think about it in this way. And if we think about it, connecting it with this thought, then we can do this and we can do that. And so it's it's a very critical read through, but it was just so invigorating as I read through it. And I don't know, I, I, I crave that shit, you know? And when you find that, it, it really does, it like lights your soul ablaze. It's funny you when you mentioned how much I, I don't like or have antipathy towards Heidegger. I remember from the same way about doing that seminar on being in time that I did a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> I was actually excited to read it because... I was like, I actually think I understand why I don't agree with this and why I don't like it. But I kind of, I, I want to engage in it. And that's a sign of respect, right? Like I actually respect the, the output to think it's, it's worthy of, you know, um, like considered rejection or something like that. Mm. But yeah, that's, that's something that, you know, probably if you don't engage in philosophical academic work, you're probably not going to find any pleasure or satisfaction in understanding why you don't <laughs> agree with something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
That's true. Well, what are your final thoughts on this blog essay thing? I thought it was really good that um, this piece went viral, even though, and you know, at the last paragraph or so of the of the piece, he mentions um, that this may be like too brutal for some people or may offend some people or whatever. And I, I certainly didn't find it to be offensive at all. I thought it was maybe brutally honest in the sense of um, being entirely open and, sh- and sharing like uh, feelings as well as um, sort of, you know, information and sort of, you know, justified thoughts and things like that. But that's not brutal in the sense of like unnecessarily so. Hmm. Um, I thought it was, it was very good and I appreciated that it was written. I appreciate the effect that it will hopefully have. And, you know, I think that it seems to me in my, in the, in the very, you know, um, tiny circles that I've been involved in over my time in like the academic philosophical world, it seems to me like the Gen Xers and the older millennials who are now engaging in their professorships, um, all agree on this. They understand that the formal academic philosophical world is corrupt and, um, and has all these unnecessary qualifications you have to engage in. And it is like soul ruining in a lot of ways. And cause they had to go through it. Right. And for most, I think for like a lot of older academics, they did that, but then they got a sense of like, of like achievement and success and pride out of, out of it, like climbing, you know, Mount Everest or whatever. Like I conquered it. Right. Mm. Some people died, but I conquered it. So mm. I have like this meritocratic pride about having gotten here and gotten tenure or whatever, right? whatever success they may have. I think most people our age and and younger and maybe a little older get that that's bullshit and it's stupid and it's just self-aggrandizing and unnecessary and we shouldn't make things harder than they need to be just so we can have some some more pride at the end of the tunnel, right? Yeah. Um, so I really hope that this is just one more example of people realizing that we can change these things. Studying philosophy does not have to be this way. It can be much better than this. Mm. Uh, it doesn't have to ruin people's souls, right, in the process. And even if you end up realizing it's not for you in the end, you can do it without having to be as caustic as this because of how much suffering you had to engage in to reach this point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, ultimately I hope it serves, helps to serve that purpose in the end, which would be funny, right, if um, the author's so concerned about whether or not their work's going to have any lasting impact on the world what if more people read this blog post than any philosophical article or book that he's written and it helps more people that way? That would be an extra kind of irony that would be I would mm. appreciate. I mean, I with how viral the article already went, I wouldn't be surprised if that was already the case. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's part of the reason that sometimes I tweet out those long, stupid threads that are philosophical rather than just, you know, me commenting on the Oscars or some shit like that because I know that I've got you know I mean I don't have a shitload of followers but I've got like 3,300 or something like that like more people are going to read a tweet than are probably ever going to read my book or an academic article right so if it's a podcast even yeah yeah it's exactly like that's part of the reason that that the, the podcast to me is so important is because our reach is far greater on here than people will probably ever read my academic work you know yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, I don't know. There are ways to do philosophy outside of the academy, and then I think we also got to take advantage of those other alternative means by which we can communicate with people. And fuck, sometimes you'll get a shirtless selfie, and sometimes you're <laughs> going to get a long thread of me musing about like the logic of financial instruments. Like, I just can't help it. All right, people? Sorry. So what I hear you saying is that podcast should count towards tenure. 
Dude, if, if you can do a PhD by publication, <laughs> why can't you get tenure by your public impact? You can, you can get an honorary doctorate for that. Does that do anything for me other than just like make my parents proud? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, nah, not unless you're like Umberto Eco and you have 40 of them. <laughs> that's right, he does. Oh my God, that's so amazing. Yeah, at what point <laughs> is it like d- diminishing returns where you're like, eh, do you want another doctorate? Actually, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, but nah, man. It's like when Sartre refuses the uh, Nobel Prize, except this is more just like, ah, I can't. I just can't hang. For Sartre, it was like authenticity and shit. For mm-hmm, Echo, yeah. it's just boredom. He's like, eh, no, nah, it just doesn't do it for me anymore. Yeah, I think once you have five, it's just like every extra one diminishes the value of the previous ones <laughs> retroactively. You think it's at five or do you think it's like... Like 10. Because at 5, you're still like laughing with your friends and you're like, you'll never believe what I got. <laughs> well, I think if, if, if you have more than 5, maybe more than 10, you can't remember anymore what each of them is for. Like, which work did you do that's associated with this honorary doctorate? You're yeah. not going to be able to remember 40 of them. <laughs> no. That's amazing. Ugh. All right. Yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed the article too. Actually, uh, I, Michael Burns shared it and that was how I found it. The guy that used to do This Week in Hip Hop, for those of you who have been around for a long time, also uh, does work at Wisecrack, has been filling in a lot of, uh, doing a lot of hosting work lately with Wisecrack, and has been hosting Show Me the Meaning. So, but he's the one who shared it to me originally, because Michael, for people who don't know, has a PhD in philosophy, and was a a lecturer, full-time lecturer at a university in the UK, and wrote a book that's actually like a path-breaking book in Kierkegaard studies, particularly with regards to Kierkegaard's relationship to materialism and politics. Wrote this book, wrote articles, uh, was very active in the academic world in terms of like running seminars and organizing conferences and all kinds of things. And he stepped away to follow his passion, which is writing comedy and other things like that. And he's also an improv actor himself. So... Like, he kind of got this. I think this this article for him was kind of like, yeah, I get it because I did the same thing three years ago, you know? Hmm. So. Yeah, for sure. It's a great example of the alt-academic uh, success story. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, just fucking find your joy, man. Not in the sense of, like, throwing away things or whatever that woman that was talking about. Like, you know, what is it? Like, spark your joy or whatever it was by simplifying and shit like whatever if that's what makes you happy makes you happy but i think if you can find projects that you can invest in if you can find your purpose in things and if it happens to be academic chemistry philosophy if it happens to be like teaching kids working with children with special needs i don't know maybe you want to develop a new more streamlined lighter because you just really enjoy smoking i don't know what your thing is (laughs) but if you can find your fucking purpose man that shit really makes a big difference yeah yeah you can leave it at that yeah yeah All right, sweet. So now we are going to jump into our final segment of the episode, The Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to recommend something that is giving us meaning in a world that is potentially void of meaning. So, T-Roy, what is making you feel happy this week and giving you purpose outside of your academic philosophical pursuits? So lately I've been listening to a record by one of my favorite groups, and it came out back in October, but I didn't really get around to it until the last month, month and a half or so. But it's um, the new album by Clipping, There Existed an Addiction to Blood. You know Clipping, right? No. You probably do and just not remembering, but they're a oh. hip-hop group. We're kind of in the, like, the noise 
um, noise version of hip hop. Okay. Uh, the um, uh, the vocalist uh, MC of the group is David Diggs, who's uh, not oh, a big yeah. deal. Yeah, he was um, one of the main characters in Hamilton. I forget who he played. I don't remember. I haven't seen Hamilton. Um, but he became kind of a big deal after uh, being in Hamilton. And I think he won like a Tony Award um, for his performance in, on Broadway. Um, but he's been in clipping since even before Hamilton was a thing. And what's funny is... You know, Hamilton's always this big smash success, right? And he's sort of used that success to launch into like an acting career. He's been in a bunch of movies and TV series. He's going to be the star of the new Snowpiercer TV series, oh, nice. um, which is coming out in a few months, I think. Um, and Damn, he, Bong Joon-ho is just all over the place, huh? Yeah, right. I, I don't think he's involved in the TV series, but um, yeah. At least I mean, he's got to be an exec producer, though, right? Yeah, for sure. He'll get that EP credit. Yeah. Um, but what's funny is he's he's sort of become kind of this mainstream success now, right? But Clipping is just this not very listenable hip-hop group. <laughs> it's oh, okay. full of, like, industrial noise and, and crazy shit. And it's certainly nothing close to pop music. And so uh, I saw them live uh, about a year ago, I think, at the um, at the Broad in L.A., which is like an art museum that's by Walt Disney Concert Hall. Oh, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it's a great place. And um, you'll sometimes see, like teenage girls with their mom there because David Diggs is playing and not realizing this is going to mm. like blow their eardrums out. Um, but anyway, clipping has been uh, around for about um, over half a decade. I think it's like 2012, 2013. And um, they've released several really good albums um, of this kind of industrial noise hip-hop combination. But their new record, which came out in October, is called There Existed an Addiction to Blood. And it's just a new level of great. I think it's... For sure, my hip hop album of last year, and I only can think how um, how much I'm going to love it in the future as I begin to sort of unearth more parts of it. Hmm. Um, it is sort of horror themed, as you can guess okay. from the title. Yeah, um, there's some like vampiric references uh, here and there, hmm. but uh, it's meant to be like a like a horror movie. Like, there's a lot of like John Carpenter type uh, themes to it, like the you know soundtrack to um, Halloween and Assault on Precinct 13 and stuff like that. And of course, my favorite horror film ever, The Thing. Um, just an example of some of the creativity that's involved in this record. First of all, David Diggs is maybe the, technically like one of the best rappers out there. Um, he's incredible with rhyme schemes um, and all the. Yeah, things what makes that, one what makes one technically proficient as a rapper? I, mean, I wouldn't be the person to ask. Ask Michael Burns, but from my <laughs> limited knowledge, things like uh, cadence. It's a big part of it. The complexity of your rhyme schemes, right? Not just doing like couplets and stuff like that, but actually involving um, mid-sentence rhymes and things like that. Um, all sorts of stuff like that. But you can listen okay. to V Diggs without any real knowledge of what makes someone a technically great rapper and still understand that this person knows what they're doing. Mm, they have okay. a skill that most people do not have. Um, but even uh, the two guys, there's. Um, it's funny, David Diggs is the is the is the vocalist, right? But the other two guys who work on basically like synths and machines and computers and stuff to create this crazy noise and lots of like um, analog type noises too. Uh, William Hudson and Jonathan Snipes, um, they're these two like art school white guys, right, with beards. Um, and they do some of the most creative, cool shit on this record and through all of Clipping's records. But for example, there's this one song on the record called Run For Your Life. And it's got Lashat, who's a 90s rapper who's associated um, with like 3-6 Mafia and stuff like that. And she's on the, on the song um, with the V Diggs and the story is basically like someone who fucks with the shot and then it's gonna, she's going to like try and kill them. So run for your life. Um, 
the beats in the background are in parts played by cars which are driving by. So you get the Doppler effect of the car driving by and the mm. beats obey the Doppler effect even though they're also on beat with David Diggs rhyming. It's Whoa. so cool and I don't know how they did that. <laughs> wow. But just listen to the song One for Your Life to get that. Um, there's also uh, a good way to kind of get into this record I think is um, the uh, video for the song Blood of the Fang. It's a really cool video. It's kind of in the vein of like a This is America that Childish mm. Gambino did uh, yeah. last year or the year before. Um, it's not exactly subtle, but neither was, you know, This is America. Um, and it features uh, doing surgery on a um, assault rifle, which is, mm. again, not very subtle. Mm. And the whole song, Blood of the Fang, is basically a history of the Black Panthers. Wow. Um, and it's the most direct, I think, David Diggs has ever been in his rapping. Clipping, clipping the word has two eyes in it, right? They stylized their name by removing the eyes, which is symbolic of the fact that um, the, the group does not want to be associated with the kind of hip-hop that's about self-aggrandizement. That me, mm. me, me, this is me. I'm going to be describing myself and my exploits uh, the whole time, right? You know, uh, fuck bitches, get money type. And so it's much more about telling stories, um, and, uh, that kind of thing. And so this is the most direct, I think he ever gets on a song on blood of the thing, but it's a killer track. And if you can listen to that, that song and not sort of think that this band is unique and one of a kind and doing some of the greatest work in hip hop right now, I don't know what to tell you. Um, mm. so yeah, check out this new record by clipping. There's existing addiction to blood. I think it's going to be a genre defining, record over the next you know half decade decade or so um i love it it's both thoroughly enjoyable even on first listen and reveals to you new and interesting things to analyze and think about the more times you listen very rare that a record can achieve both those things at the same time i think that makes something truly great when it can do that um so yeah i encourage you out there check out this record there existed an addiction to blood check out the video for blood of the fang as an introduction to it and then just like dive into the rest of the record Cool. Yeah, I'm literally going to watch that music video while I lay in bed and try to fall asleep, and then I'll listen to the soundtrack. Yeah, I guess legit. Not, not the soundtrack. I'll listen to the album, and it will be the soundtrack of my sleep. <laughs> you might not sleep well if that's the case, because it's, it's kind of scary, dude. I remember waking up to like hardcore screams and shit like that <laughs> because I fell asleep listening to tracks that were a little bit more mellow, and then on shuffle, like all of a sudden, it would just be like, Rah! so. You know, I'm down. Whatever, I can, I can deal. That sounds yeah, right. As long as you don't mind songs about people getting chopped up by chainsaws, then you'll be cool. Yeah, it's like watching a horror film, right? Yeah, kind of. John yeah. Carpenter, that's the shit, man. Yeah, man, I'm down for it. No, that sounds cool. Yeah, I know uh, David Diggs. I don't know. I don't think I've ever listened to Clipping, but I feel like you've talked about them before. Yeah, they're one of my favorite groups, so I've because certainly I also, talked about them before. Yeah, because I also maybe did you talk about them after you went to the concert? Yeah, this might be my second clipping sticky leaves. I don't know. Yeah, because I remember you talking about the guys in the background in particular. So, yeah, I'm kind of – there's yeah, some vague, vague recollection here. Interesting. Yeah, they're legit live. So if you have any chance to see them, definitely do it. Sweet, man. Well, all right. That sounds sick. I'm down. I don't know shit about hip-hop. So – Yeah, you do. You're a SoCal white boy. You know everything about hip-hop. I know everything. Yeah. You know the first hip-hop album? You are the key album? demo. The, 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 I actually probably am. 
Um, for, <laughs> for, for some forms of hip-hop. The first hip-hop album that I really got into was Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood by DMX. Yeah, that was the shit, man. That thing was so huge. Dude. Dude. <laughs> is that the one with the prayers on it? Yes, it is. That is exactly yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being like, it's okay that he cusses so much because he prays too. He doesn't just cuss so much. He literally has a song where he's talking about like fucking a corpse and shit like that. I'm like, oh, I got blood on my dick and there's no remorse. Or no, I got blood on my hands and there's no remorse. I got blood on my dick because I fucked a corpse. I'm a nasty and bomb. Yeah, dude. Oh, oh yeah. my and then God. What happened it's to DMX? All, it's all good. It's all right. Fuck all day. Fuck all night. All my bitches wherever I go, get all my bitches east to the west coast, all my bitches. Like, I remember being 15, 16 years old, however old I was, and us, you know, driving driving around in my buddy's car. Maybe we were older than that, 16, 17. But I remember that was, like, so scandalous, you know, driving mm-hmm. around in my buddy's truck. And I'm not trying to just score points here as, like, a good white liberal or something like that, but my buddy was black. And so, like, I also felt, like, more authentic because <laughs> <laughs> I was just in the car. It? Yeah, because I was in the car with Stan, and like this was his music, and he was introducing me, so I felt like I was getting a cultural experience from a real tour guide. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, good fun. No, but cool. I'm definitely going to listen to clipping, and I dig the idea. Like, do they advertise the, their stylization of their name to intentionally remove the I, or is this something that's come out like secretively in interviews and things like that? Or are they kind of like, no, this is like we want people to know this. Like, they kind of wear it on their sleeve. No, they totally wear it on their sleeve. They, they've explicitly yeah. said it's the case. Oh, cool. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I like I like when there is – I know some people might think it's kind of like pretentious, but I – well, first of all, I really like a little bit of artistic pretension sometimes. But I really, <laughs> I really like it when there's stuff like that, right? Like where it's like we are artistically stylizing it because we're trying to distance ourselves from other sort of artistic representations. There's – I think it's important for art to not just simply be directed to the audience, but to also like laterally speak about the medium of art itself. And so I like I like that they do that intentionally. That's really cool. Yeah, they're doing a, a different kind of thing. I don't think it's meant to be um, like antagonistic towards the mainstream hip hop world, but they're they're clearly doing a different kind of thing. Like their their previous album that came out a couple of years ago is called Splendor and Misery, and it's a concept record that's basically not even songs so much as just a story told in rap form about um, a, a dude in space hmm. who is like enslaved, basically. Um, it's a really cool story and record. So yeah, they're, they're doing original, unique stuff out there. Sweet. All right. Well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Yeah, dude? Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Well, thank you all for tuning in to another episode. Next week, we will be tackling the patron-chosen topic on the politics of certainty versus the politics of uncertainty. We just needed to take an extra week to kind of figure out exactly how we were going to address that and tackle that issue. But that's going to be next week's since that was the episode that y'all patrons chose. So thank you for that. If you would like to be a patron, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and get access to those perks. And I think that's pretty much it, unless there's anything you got to say, Troy. Just one thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Dasvidaniya, Mary Konsky. Mm-hmm.